So when I started to see the reality of that and then compare it to multifamily and the cash flow model, the, um, you know, just having so many doors under one roof and how it just made a lot more sense financially. And I believe it's um, a lot less risk as well. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, AAA Adams. And today I'm excited because we're going to talk about somebody's journey from single family all the way through to multifamily. And so we've got Jake Garcia on the show today. And I'm going to share a couple things that Jake and I have in common because whenever you have those commonalities, it really brings you together. And so there's three things. The number one is we both got started in real estate before the crash of 2008. Number two, we were both doing creative real estate through the crash. Uh, That's owner financing, subject to, you name it. Uh, And number three, which is perhaps one of the ones that draws us closer together. We both have a 12-year-old. He's got a 12-year-old. I have a 12-year-old. And they both have autism. And so it's, it's really interesting when you meet another parent who, who knows what you go through, uh, the different types of challenges and, that you would have with someone with autism. So it's kind of interesting. His daughter is 12. My son is, is 12. And uh, they both have autism. So we have a few things in common. Currently, Jake is a general partner on three different apartment communities. In They're, they're, they're going to be in Texas, the apartment communities, all three of them. So he's got like 357 doors. And he also owns and manages uh, his own residential portfolio in the Phoenix MSA, about 54 units, uh, residential units there as well. And so he's going to talk about those 54 units, what he did, how he, how he scaled, how he ended up partnering on these 357 units in Texas as a general partner. And he has bought and sold over $46 million. So that's some street cred for you. $46 million in residential and multifamily assets throughout uh, Arizona. That's Texas and New Mexico. Jake has implemented a strategy of recognizing undervalued opportunities in solid U.S. markets, allowing him to capitalize and sell for a profit. Jake works with his wife, Nicole who's an active real, estate invest, active real estate agent and has been in Arizona since 2011. Mr. Jake Garcia, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, great, great to have you. So we're going we're gonna to dive in because I know that there's a lot of listeners who, that what they're thinking is, you know what, ultimately I want to be in multifamily. Ultimately, I want to I want to do that commercial real estate. And there's a few things that may be holding them back. They might not uh, think that they have enough money in their bank account right now. They might not think that they have enough experience. Maybe they're saying to themselves, I, I have to flip, uh, you know, like, like you did. I have to flip and, and hold rentals of 54 different units before I can go and buy a 54 unit. So I'm going to need to do that. So I want to dive into these things. Like what kind of money do you need to get involved in multifamily 
communities and what kind of experience do you truly need to have? Um, so let's, let's start there. Jake, if somebody's listening and they, they're trying to say to themselves, hey, I want to, I want to do this, but I, I don't think I have enough money, what would be your response? Well, when I got started in real estate, uh, I had a negative net worth. So I had a mentor who was doing some real estate deals and he showed me some ways that I could locate properties um, online. I remember uh, my wife and I putting up bandit signs on the freeway at three in the morning, uh, you know, putting a lot of uh, grassroots type of stuff. But we started doing subject twos, you know, taking over other people's mortgages and, and wrapping those with a new deal and, and putting a tenant in those homes. And as soon as I was able to do that, the light bulb really went on and it uh, motivated me to continue to find more deals. Nice. Okay. So here, how about this? How about this? There's a listener, at least one that's saying to themselves, yeah, I'd like to get into multifamily, but I need to be in single family for five years first. Uh, I'd like to get into multifamily commercial assets, but you know, I, I need to learn. I need to, you know, cut my teeth on, you know, these smaller assets. Would, would you say that that's true? Would you say that that's what they need to do is they need to own single family for the next five years in order to kind of get to that next level? Or is there another way? No, not at all. If I had it to do all over again, uh, I would start in multifamily. Uh, the scalability, um, just being able to have multiple doors under one roof. Uh, I love the model. Uh, I'm really transitioning out of single family now. But, you know, everybody has to make their own decision. And it is good to get experience and, and gain some confidence and and get into the market and see how you're going to like it. Cause it's not for everybody. Uh, but you know, there are tremendous opportunities out there. So. All right. This next question, Jake is um, for you. I really want you to kind of tell us just your journey. So I don't know if this is going to be a 30 second answer or if it's going to be a five minute answer, but I really like you to share with us, you know, back in 2007, I believe it was when you bought your first, single family, um, what were you going through when you bought that first one? How long did it, so I'm going to, it's going to be a multi-question. What were you going through? Uh, how long for the next one? And then after that, try to help us follow uh, a journey, whether it's 30 seconds or a few minutes, just to give us the real deal of your progress and your process to getting to where you are today, uh, 13 years later. Okay. So I uh, worked in the service industry for quite a while, waiting tables, bartending, uh, didn't enjoy it. Ended up in a sales room, uh, working in a cubicle. I hated my job every day, getting up, driving to work. You know, I was miserable trying to sell products to people that were inferior. They didn't want them. And I just knew there had to be another way. I really, really wanted out. And I was willing to take some action, start asking people uh, that I knew that were doing some real estate deals, how they got started. And uh, I was really fortunate to have a mentor who took the time to sit with me, explain the process, recommend some books, 
and really get me started. He recommended that I go to the local real estate investor association uh, on a regular basis, which I did. Met a lot of wonderful people there that were willing to help. Uh, ended up finding a couple of deals. They were marginal deals, but you know, I didn't have anything to work with. So at that time, it, it really gave me the confidence I needed to see that this was a real opportunity, that I could actually do it, even though I don't have college education or, um, you know, always kind of looked at myself as an introvert, not a guy to get out and go shake hands and give my business card out. And, you know, that stuff was difficult for me in the beginning. But uh, I was able to work through that. Really completing those first couple of deals really lit a fire under me. I saw how real this was, and I just uh, started to pursue other opportunities uh, in the fix and flip space. I was able to source some hard money lenders. What year is this? Okay, so this is uh, 2007 I started. Yeah. 2009, I left my job to mm -hmm. go full-time all in real estate. Okay. And then when you first decided to do these fix and flips, is this part of 2009? Yes, this is 2009. Fix and flip full time. Uh, started finding deals, uh, finding the money, putting everything together. Uh, built basically a volume fix and flip machine. So I hate to interrupt you. What was it like? You're in 2008 here and 2009 and you're, you've decided to actually go full force you decide to go forward and do flips, but in Arizona, as I understand it, like in most of the country, 2008, there was a crash. 2009, people were still scared. They, weren't, they didn't even get started in buying real estate again in 2012 after 9-11 is when people are like, okay, I think we can start buying again. So when you, were, uh, when you were going forward, when other people were going back, what was that like? What did it feel like? Was it hard? Were people calling you crazy? Uh, yeah, take it away. I'm really curious. <laughs> people were calling me crazy. A lot of people. Uh, I think the thing that helped me the most was being around people that were doing it. So I could see others that were buying these properties and, and they were listing them and selling them successfully. Uh, at that time, the deals were plentiful it was sourcing the capital that was the real challenge. So, mm. um, you know, another uh, contingency that I had is, you know, I was buying stuff using hard money, but it would still cash flow or break even as a rental. So I always kind of had a plan B, okay, if I get stuck with this flip, can I put a tenant in it and be okay? And so I always would make sure that that was the case before I'd pull the trigger and buy something. Smart, smart. So 2009, everybody's calling you crazy or a lot of people are saying, what are you doing? But you saw some people that were having success in it and you knew that you could do it. And then you, you said to yourself, you know what, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make sure that I have a contingency plan. I'm going to have the ability to have a plan B in case it isn't flippable. And what you did is you said, I want to make sure it's rentable. And so how did you understand if it was rentable or what were you looking at at that time? Um, were you looking at what rent rates were, how much your expenses were? Were you looking at how fast you could get rented? Like, and how did you know if it was going to be a good deal in 2009 when you were flipping the houses? Well, the rental market was still strong back there. And so one of the first things was making sure the rent rate was going to support the debt 
but also having multiple exit strategies. You know, one of the things I love about real estate so much is how many options we have with any one particular deal. And so I learned about lease options and doing seller carries and, uh, you know, putting people in as tenant buyers and getting money up front. And so all of those things really gave me the confidence that I needed to say, okay, we have plan A, B, C, and D. Let's move forward. Okay. And so, so now we're in 2009, still 11 years ago. So I hate, I'm sorry, I keep cutting you off, but I'm like, I, I swear there's some listeners that are wondering like, what was that like in 2008, 2009, like starting this business in Arizona when, other people running, but so I might cut you off again, but tell, let's go back to 2009 as you have these ABCD contingencies, not just that one extra contingency. Let's start from there. Okay. So the fix and flips were successful. Uh, I had again, another mentor that said, Jake, you might want to think about keeping some of these cheap houses you're finding instead of selling them all. And so I did switch gears around 2011 and 12, and and I tried to keep one house for every three I would flip. And so that worked well. Then it just turned into a uh, sourcing capital refinancing out of you know hard money to soft money, soft money to bank money, cashing out and going and doing it again. So, so you said one out of three, and <clears throat> this was in what year? 2010? About 2011 and 12. 2011 and 12. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was um, in 2011 is when I sold my last uh, property before 2005. I had a hiatus for four years. You were talking about how in 2011, you would hold one property for every three that you would flip. And so what I was going to say is in 2015, 16, that's when people were starting to say, you know, flips were starting to get really popular. You know, it was all over on all these TV shows. People were excited about it. And there was some wise people saying to the 2015, 16, 17, you got to hold one for every three. And I'm just curious where you learned that. Was this, did you just make up this rule or did that mentor that was, telling you that you uh, ought to think about keeping some of them. Was that his number? Was he like, keep one out of three? I'm really curious. No, his advice was to keep as many as I could. He thought I should keep them all, but I still had to eat and feed my family. It was my only income. So one out of three seemed to work well for me. It was a good formula where it would keep the bills paid. And Mm. um, that's kind of why I just, tried to keep as many as I could, but it averaged one out of three. Okay. Okay. Got it. So one out of three, you're starting to hold them. This is around 2011, 2012. And by the time it was 2013, how many rentals did you have? The majority of my rental portfolio I had by 2013, I would say I had 45 of them. Holy cow. So how many were you flipping? Well, I usually had eight to 12, maybe 15 going at a time. It varied, but you always have a couple in escrow waiting to close. You have a few being rehabbed. You have a few on the market then a few in escrow waiting to close. So, um, yeah. And, and I kept, so, you know, in a whole year then how many would you close in a whole year? I don't have my top year 
number. I should look that up. I would say uh, 40-ish. Wow. And flips. That's, yeah. am- that's amazing, Jake. That's really cool. It was, it was a lot of work. A lot of work. Yeah. Okay, so then what happened when you had a majority of your rental portfolio in 2013? Uh, take, us, take us again now through the next seven years, 13 through uh, 2020. Okay, so I self-managed the properties, which I don't highly recommend, but it was good for me to get the education and really understand what it is to be a landlord. Um, but I also continued to flip homes. I started a lending arm uh, and started mentoring and helping other guys that were flipping, and then I would do, do the loans for them. Uh, started focusing in on uh, self-directed IRA investing, Uh, also I have a group home business within that portfolio. Uh, so that took quite a bit of my time and I've really enjoyed doing that. And then I was introduced to multifamily, uh, through my real estate investor association in 2009. Uh, one of the educators came through and gave his pitch and I really liked the idea. It's just what I had going was working well. And I figured, well, if it's not broken, why, why not fix it or, or why try and fix it? And uh, my mentor at the time, he did invest in that education. And so he started doing multifamily. And for a lot of years, he told me, hey, Jake, the water is pretty nice over here, man. You got to jump in and check it out. Yeah. You're wasting your time over there with those single family homes. And so finally, uh, I did take his advice and I got involved with multifamily through him. Same guy who mentored me in single family showed me how to get started in multifamily. And what year was that? Uh, Well, I started the education about two years ago. Okay. Um, You know, I was reading some books, but I made a decision and committed seriously two years ago. And then last year was the first deals that I closed on, the first syndications. Prior to that last deal, you did a lot of single family. You had a whole portfolio. Uh, what was the most amount of units that you had closed uh, prior to your first syndication? Multifamily units? Yeah, yeah. Um, I did a five unit here in Phoenix on my own. Okay, so you yeah. went from a five unit to like a hundred and... Four. A hundred and four units. And so the obvious... Uh, question comes to what did that feel like when like the next biggest thing was 20 times less than what you're about to accomplish you like you did a five and then all of a sudden jake garcia is has the tenacity to skip a 10 unit a 20 unit a 50 unit a 70 a 80 unit and it goes past a hundred so what I think the listeners wanting to know as we're talking about being able to go from, you know, single family to multifamily, what were you going through? What were you nervous about? How did you compensate for it? Well, I was nervous about it. Um, I'd heard on different podcasts and from various people that it's just as easy to do a larger building as a small one. And that I couldn't wrap my brain around that. It didn't really sink in for quite a while. Um, But you know, having the on-site management is huge and being able to detach from that part of it and be able to just work with the management company and the on-site manager. 
I think that's one of the huge advantages to having a larger building instead of trying to support, say, a 16 unit where yeah. you're not going to be able to have that. Um, but it was intimidating. It was exciting. It was exhilarating, actually. I mean, I, I was kind of just going through the motions for a couple of years. I'd gotten complacent. Um, I wasn't really excited about going to work like I used to be. But once I got involved with multifamily, it's like that old fire was back. You know, I was learning something new. I was growing my business. I was meeting new people, going to new events. And um, I, re- I re- realized how much I missed those activities. Yeah. So I'm having a lot of fun now. That's really cool. Yeah. I love that. I'm, I'm, we need to quote that. That was, that, was, that was a good quote. All right. So you um, got into multifamily, had 104. There were some challenges. You were nervous. Uh, by the time that you closed it, you, you were feeling good about it. It's getting you back out to networking a little bit more. Uh, the one question that I still have, though, is um, you were going into a 100-plus unit apartment community, and this 100-plus unit apartment community was about 20 times bigger than anything you had ever closed before. What did you do to protect yourself? What did you do to protect the passive investors? What did you do to be able to actually sign on the loan? Like, how did you go from five to 100 plus? Well, my mentor invited me into the deal. So, I talk a lot about the mentors in my life because – they're so valuable and so important to get hooked up with somebody that has already done what you're trying to do is giving of their time, uh, you know, willing to help guide you avoid pitfalls. So he had the deal and he'd been talking to me about participating uh, in a syndication with him. And I finally decided it was time. You know, I, I understood it. The numbers look good. Uh, we visited the property. I, everything Uh, fell into place. And just knowing that I was involved with this person that I trusted, who was already doing it, who was successful, it gave me a lot of confidence to move forward. And um, I did uh, bring some of my relationships in and, uh, you know, everything just fell into place. On on that one, did you raise any equity yourself on on that first deal? I did. Yeah. Uh, What was that like? Well, I had already uh, raised money to do as I was building the fix and flip machine. You know, the challenge back then was the financing. The deals were plentiful, but it was hard to get money. So I had some experience raising money, Um, not really at this level, but I had some relationships and I was comfortable talking to people about investing with me. Um, So that that part wasn't as difficult as um, it is for some people. But back then, when I first started raising money, I was terrified. I mean, I, I just couldn't get the marbles out of my mouth. I have a really hard time sometimes um, conveying the message that I'm, you know, I know what I want to say, but I have a hard time saying it. Even now, I struggle with my words sometimes. So, um, but I was able to overcome all of that, and the money is out there. I mean, you know it's out there. You've raised a ton of money. And um, I continue to find people that are looking for opportunities and people that enjoy talking about these deals and they want to be a part of something. 
You know, Jake, that means that we actually have four major things in common because uh, it's, it's not just that we both got started before the crash. It's not just that we utilized creative real estate and raised other people's money to get deals done. It's not just that we have 12-year-olds with autism, but the fourth one is that I really struggle with my words. I am not an eloquent speaker. I uh, don't feel like, um, I don't feel, like I look at all these other people and they're so suave and they're so cool and they're so calm and collected (laughs) and they have so much confidence and I'm sitting here like flubbering on my words, but I think that's really good to bring out to the listener because there's some listeners that are cool, calm and collected for sure. But there's, there's probably a few that are like you and me where we don't feel like we're – like I'm ADD, right? So I change my subjects in the <laughs> middle of a sentence. I forget what I was going to say. Uh, go back into this own episode, this very episode, and you can hear me doing that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot what I was saying. Crap. <laughs> you know, so that happens. But still, you're able to raise plenty of equity for your single family and your multifamily. And I'm doing just fine. So what do you think it is? Like, is it how eloquent you are that helps you raise money? Or is there something else that allows you to bring in money from other people? The thing that's helped me the most is building and nurturing those relationships and genuinely being interested in the investor or the people that you're working with. Most of the people I work with when we talk about a deal, it's a very small percentage of the conversation. You know, we have things in common. We're talking about their grandkids. We're um, meeting and doing things outside of real estate. My biggest investor, we go ride quads and do all kinds of stuff that's not about the deal. So I think that's what's really helped me. I'm, I'm interested in people. Uh, people are fascinating. They're quirky. Uh, I just like I do a better one-on-one than I do in a group. So if I can get somebody one-on-one and, and hang out with them, we usually do pretty good together. Perfect. I'm, I'm the same way. I'd rather be one-on-one. Absolutely. It's a lot easier, but I put myself in those conferences. You came to the <laughs> raising money summit. There was 617 people and you know, I was definitely shy, uh, definitely nervous, but you know, we made it, we made do, we made it happen. We had a good time. Uh, Tremendous value in that conference. I'm looking forward to coming back this year and anybody who hasn't attended, I would highly recommend it. Ah, thank Excellent you. Speakers. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. So the, so we, I will give a plug since we're talking about it just only because, um, if somebody's wondering how to find it, I'll just give them the website real fast. It's raisingmoneysummit.com. So we're talking about the Raising Money Summit. Easy enough. Just go to raisingmoneysummit.com. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, it's going to be October 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. And I know that there's been a lot of events closing down in 2020 so far because of coronavirus and things like that. But um, I'm going to say that by October, we're going to be in a little bit different situation. So uh, definitely want to grab your tickets to Raising Money Summit at RaisingMoneySummit.com. Um, all right, Jake, what would be the biggest advice, one or two things that you can think of that the listener 
who's currently doing single family can do to be uh, more uh, confident about jumping into these larger 100 plus unit apartment communities? Well, I think hooking up with people that are already doing it. You know, I started listening to multifamily podcasts like yours, going to uh, events that were specific to multifamily and um, really getting involved with the community and the people that were uh, successfully participating in the space. So you're a great mentor. There's a lot of other people out there that are willing to help, uh, but I couldn't encourage you enough to really seek out some side of some sort of mentorship program or some sort of mentor that can guide you. I love that. I, and I, and I completely agree with you. If I didn't have mentors, I probably wouldn't have gone very far. I may have taken action because I am an action taker, but I don't think that I would have, um, I think I would have lost a lot of money by taking action on the wrong thing. So I agree with that. Is there any other advice that you have for somebody who really just wants to go from uh, single family to larger multifamily? I think really understanding the math helped me because when I would analyze a single family deal, it pencils out good and you think you're going to, you know, cash flow three, 400 bucks a month. But the reality is at the end of the year, when you're done and you total it all up, it's never as advertised or rarely is it as I penciled it out in the beginning. And so, um, you know, one major expense, an AC, a roof, something like that can kill five or more years of cash flow. So when I started to see the reality of that and then compare it to multifamily and the cash flow model, the, um, you know, just having so many doors under one roof and how it just made a lot more sense financially. And I believe it's, um, a lot less risk as well, uh, being in multifamily and having uh, multiple doors under one roof. So to answer your question, the math, when you, you can't argue with the math. I really liked how you said that um, it's less risk because really what I, I, what I think most people, I, what I expect most people think is they would, they'd be looking at themselves um, answering these questions saying, yeah, I could, it's so much less risky to just do a single family. Like if I do a hundred unit, that's going to be like a hundred times more risky, but just kind of what you're saying is, you know, you go from a fiveplex to a 104 unit and it's, it becomes less risky. That's just super, super interesting. And I think part of it comes down to, um, math, like you said, part of it comes down to understanding the numbers, understanding how it works and underwriting the deal appropriately. What's the term that everybody always says, calculated risk? So um, th there's more ability to calculate your risk on a, on a 100 unit apartment community than there is on a five unit apartment community. So uh, real quick question, because you said that they need to know the math, they, they need to know how to underwrite better. They need to understand what happens if an AC goes out, if you have to replace a roof because it could take your cash flow or, or whatever. Because you said that's important, the listeners probably wondering, how do we do that? Like, 
if I want to underwrite it, do I go to YouTube? Do I ask my mentor? Do I uh, pay for a coaching? Is there a YouTube video that Jake Garcia has that can teach me how to understand the numbers? Like what would be the way for the listener to get to that level where they can feel comfortable about their underwriting? Uh, I have paid for some coaching programs, um, more than one, and I've received tremendous value from all of them. So I think that's a good option. Uh, Another thing that I've done is I hooked up with somebody that that's their specialty. That's what they really enjoy is the underwriting piece. I don't particularly enjoy it, but I understand how important it is. So it helped me to get with somebody who really enjoys it and then ask them to explain it to me. Because, you know, I can look at a spreadsheet, but it's a lot easier for me to really wrap my brain around it if somebody sits with me and says, hey, this is what we're looking at. These are the trends. These are the reasons why we're putting these numbers in. And um, I haven't found a shortage of people that are willing to take the time to do that. So that's one of the reasons I love this community so much is people are so helpful and willing to give back. Awesome. Awesome. Jake, I can't wait because we're about to get into your most creative deal that you've ever done. But first, we're just going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Hey, it's Adam Adams, and I want to take a second to say thank you to one of our sponsors. Now, if you've tried to earn a full-time income flipping houses the traditional way, you know it takes a lot of money. Putting 10 or 20% down on each house adds up fast. Plus, you could lose hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get caught holding a few houses when the market crashes. Well, what if I told you that there was a better way to flip houses, a way that didn't require much upfront capital, a way that made it easy to find more fix and flip deals than you could even handle, and best of all, a way that insulated you from losing all your money in a market crash? Well, I'm here to tell you that there is a simple way to quit your job and flip houses full-time. It's called Fix and List Deal. Eric Young used the strategy to quit his job, double his income, and become a self-made house flipper in less than a year. Eric's a real estate investor located in Denver, and he's perfected the fix and list strategy over the last four years, and he's got a free giveaway. Learn how you can implement the fix and list strategy by watching Eric's free video lessons at fixandlistsecrets.com. It may just change your life. And we're back with Mr. Jake Garcia. Jake, what's the most creative deal you've ever done? Uh, I'd have to say finding a, a home that somebody wanted out of Uh, structuring a deal with them to purchase it and then find an end user buyer to come in uh, who then found another person to, I mean, it was uh, like a big Mac lease option that had three different parties in it um, where everybody benefited, everybody profited, it went well. And uh, it's the only one like that I've done. What is a book you recommend? Um. Wow, there's so many great books. What, I recently read one that really got me thinking in a different way. It's called The Saint, The Surfer, and The CEO. Really enjoyed it. Interesting. The Saint, The Surfer, and The CEO. I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, where were you five years ago? I know you've been doing this for a long time. You got started, though, in multi, large multifamily just a couple of years ago. But take us back five years ago. Just let us know what you were going through. And then uh, as part of the question, just let us know where you plan to be five years from today. Five years ago, I was uh, still doing flips. I had the rental portfolio and the group home business going. 
I also uh, invested in some education and notes, non-performing and performing notes. And I really spent a lot of time about a year doing that right about five years ago. And five years from today? Uh, five years from today, uh, my goal is to 1031 out of a lot of my single family uh, and put that money into multifamily deals uh, in the Southwest, hopefully. Uh, but I'm open to other emerging markets. So that's really the goal is the, the real night life monopoly. Trade How do you in give- all- oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt No, no. I- How do you give back? Um, So I'm a member of the 12-step community. I'm a recovering uh, drug addict and alcoholic. And so I go into the county jails once a week on Wednesday mornings with a group of guys, and we carry a message of hope. Uh, I also uh, sponsor men in recovery. I'm passionate about helping people find another way to live because I remember what it was like to be trapped uh, in addiction. Wow, I love that. Thank you for going into that. Really appreciate it. Mm. What is the best way for the listener to find you or get a hold of you? Um, So one of my goals is to step up my game with technology. Uh, I don't have a website. Uh, My cell phone number is a really good way to call me or email summitgroupcapital at gmail.com. That's probably the best way. Excellent. So what we'll do is I'm going to throw that in the show notes right now. So it's summitgroupcapital.com. Uh, summit group capital at gmail.com is the email address. And that is now in the show notes, summit group capital at gmail.com. And that way you, the listener, you can reach out to Jake. You can, you can get to know him, find out the next time that you're in the Phoenix area. If you can reach out to him and maybe buy him a meal, no drinks, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm just so glad that you took the time to spend with us on the show, going from what happened in 2007, 8, 9, 10, all the way to 2020, where you now have 357 units on GP of three different syndications, plus you have your own 54-unit commercial, uh, 54-unit residential portfolio, which you plan to 1031 out of five years from today. I really appreciate you coming through, letting us know that process and helping us inspire us to be able to say, you know, do we need to take these little baby steps from five to 20 to 50 to 70, then go to the hundred? Or is it possible to do like Jake Garcia and go from five to 104 with the right people on your team? I'm going to let you go, my friend, but until next time, think outside the box. This is Jason J. Lou Lewis, co-host of the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I want to say it's an absolute honor to have you as a listener, and we thank you for tuning in today. We also want to thank our sponsor, FixAndListSecrets.com. They have that great free video lesson, and in that video lesson, you will learn to never struggle to find or fund your next fix and flip deal again. Learn how to flip houses without ever taking out a mortgage or a hard money loan. You can now flip houses full-time and not have the risk of losing money in a real estate market crash. There's a simple way to flip houses full-time, and this is it. Visit FixAndListSecrets.com. See you on the next episode.